Welcome to the Vax Up Podcast, a podcast that shines light on health organizations who use social technologies to get accurate vaccine information to their communities. This show is brought to you by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and the Sabin Vaccine Institute, both members of the Alliance to Advance Health Online. Vax Up is produced by the team behind a Shot in the Arm podcast. And now here's our host, global health strategist and advocate, Ben Plumley. Well, let me add my welcome. At Vax Up, we profile partnerships from around the world that are using the power of digital and social engagement to promote vaccine acceptance, particularly in hard-to-reach communities. We look at the challenges they are seeking to overcome, and then we review the solutions that they are implementing. Our profile today is of a grantee of the Vaccine Confidence Fund and the Alliance to Advance Health Online, a partnership between the Maya Health Alliance and Bay Area Global Health Alliance members, UCSF and Stanford University. Now they're looking at how to blend the need to communicate to rural indigenous Mayan communities in Guatemala in their own languages with advances in digital media and social platforms. And as always, we are joined by a panel of experts to draw out the lessons learned for vaccine implementers in different communities and settings. And so joining us today are Nadia Diamond-Smith, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. Hey, Nadia, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Now, you're a partner in this collaboration, yes? Yes, um, and I'm really excited to be here and talk more about this wonderful partnership and our work together. Super. And we're also joined by anthropologist uh, Monica Berger-Gonzalez, who heads up the unit of medical anthropology at the Universidad del Valle de Guatemala. Welcome, Monica, and uh, I apologize if I've butchered your name and the uh, university. <laughs> Not at all, Ben, and thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, you've had a lot of uh, involvement, a lot of work in looking at how to provide health services for rural indigenous communities in Guatemala. Have you had much to do with the use of social technology in, in implementing that to date? Yes, yes. We've been running a surveillance and response project in different communities in Guatemala for COVID-19 specifically. And... Um, it has been key, the use of um, social media and mobile technology to be able to reach populations and make it, you know, reduce the time to detection and control, and also to be able to give um, specific information in the native languages and times. So it's, it's earned us a lot of um, interesting insights into the whole process. Now, Nadia, you're part of the partnership that worked on this collaboration. So just tell us a little bit about how that came together. Yeah, it's been a really exciting and wonderful partnership, um, especially in this COVID time where actually none of the teams have ever met each other in person. Um, and it's really a testament to how I think we've all learned over the past two years about how to build relationships and get things done and learn to trust each other um, in these global health partnerships in this interesting time. But when we saw the um, with the UCSO, our part of the UCSF team, and when we saw the call for proposals, um, we were excited and interested, but really wanted to look to um, you know to see what was happening and understand you know what people were already doing on the ground and rather than sort of coming in with ideas of our own see if there was someone we could partner with to try to you know test and understand more about what they were doing on the ground so it was really a 
partnership that came out of what was already going on in the um, communities in Guatemala. Well, let's go to the first clip then, which looks at the challenges that the Maya Health Alliance, uh, UCSF and Stanford universities were, were looking at addressing. In 1996, Guatemala emerged from a 36-year civil war, a war fought over rampant corruption, land reform, military power, and control over its economy that resulted in more than 200,000 deaths and 40,000 disappearances. Bearing the brunt of the decades-long conflict, indigenous Mayan communities whose villages were destroyed by the government of the time if they were suspected of supporting leftist rebels. Today, 26 years after the 1996 peace accord signing, local health worker Emily Lopez says Guatemalan society has yet to heal and that Mayan communities continue to exist on the margins. My name is Emily Lopez. I'm the awards and partnerships manager at Maya Health Alliance. Guatemala is one of the most unequal countries. You can barely see people from the communities living well. Like, really, really a small percentage of people in the country are really wealthy, and a lot of percentage of people in the country are very poor. So this is still something very marked, and I think this is also, um, like, influences the trust that people can have in other people. Building trust among Guatemala's estimated 6 million indigenous residents, particularly trust in accurate health information, lies at the heart of the mission of Maya Health Alliance, locally known as Wuku Kawak, where Emily works. Located in the town of Tecpan, about an hour and a half from the capital Guatemala City, Maya Health Alliance delivers culturally tailored health education and services to rural indigenous communities in a variety of Mayan languages. It's an effort aimed at promoting health among a population largely ignored by the Ministry of Health that operates mainly in Spanish, a need that has grown even more urgent during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, for example, at first, the issue that people didn't know what COVID-19 was and there was not... Uh, any material available in their Mayan language. Uh, here in Guatemala, we have 22 Mayan languages and they're spoken in different communities. It depends on the area of the country. So with the government, we have had some like informations going on uh, told by the president, but only in Spanish. Estimados conciudadanos, quiero informarles que esta noche en Consejo de Ministros, atendiendo las recomendaciones enviadas por la... As of early February 2022, Guatemala counted over 712,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases and more than 16,500 deaths. According to World Health Organization data, indigenous people, who comprise at least 40% of the country's population, have been hit hardest. I am Ann Kramer, and I am the director of Maya Health Alliance Fukukabuk in Guatemala. Unfortunately, the indigenous communities here in Guatemala tend to be hit the hardest in almost every way, shape, or form, depending on what the situation is. I think in the pandemic, in the beginning, uh, when caseloads were much lower, they were definitely hit financially. 
when all the transportation was shut down, when jobs were closed, when they couldn't get their product to market, when you know you couldn't get to market maybe to purchase foods, things like that. A lot of people in the indigenous communities were saying, well, we might not die of the virus, we're gonna die of not having enough food or enough money, right? And at the same time, which has happened around the world, many services have shut down. The Ministry of Health had to really focus on COVID. So they've shut down many of their, you know, walk-in services across the country, not only in the hospitals in Guatemala City, but also in the rural communities. A lot of our communities here in Guatemala are in like in the mountains. And you can also imagine it is hard sometimes to get electricity services or even clean water. That is very common and for sure in some times you won't find internet. So what you will find are little houses with two rooms where people all live together. And with this COVID situation it's very difficult because you cannot isolate the, the person that is sick. With just 31% of Guatemala's population fully vaccinated against COVID-19, the Maya Health Alliance team is working hard to encourage vaccine uptake among these vulnerable indigenous communities. But this work has been challenging, largely due to the history of neglect by the government. I think for the communities, it has been very hard because they say, like, nobody has been caring for us before the pandemic, so they won't be caring for us right now. And maybe they want to kill us with the vaccine, so we won't get them. Oftentimes, indigenous communities are the last to receive help. They're the last to be, you know, to really receive the goods, the food, anything that um, they should be receiving. And they've sort of become used to it. And the communities kind of say, hey, you know, this is just another way to kill us off. Is the vaccine a way to make us sterile or infertile? Is this a way to just get rid of us altogether? They've tried in the past, so why isn't this just the next step? As Anne, Emily, and the rest of the Maya Health Alliance team strategized on how to best help their indigenous clients, it was clear that providing accurate vaccine information and tackling misinformation and fear-driven myths about COVID-19 vaccines was a top priority. Their overall fears were from every everything from an adverse reaction to being sterile, to being the antichrist, to being microchipping, a little bit of everything. And so I think it really was an aha moment to me about where people get their information and how we as a public health organization, we really have to be careful and think about how we're sharing information, how we're getting the correct information, the best information out to our communities. Well, there we are. Your immediate thoughts. Um, Monica, maybe we could start with you. Um, the challenges of providing accurate information about vaccines to all the communities in Guatemala, COVID, and I suppose more broadly than that. Your thoughts? Yes, um, it reflects to what we've been hearing and understanding through research from several colleagues all around the country. It is There are several layers of um, information and important things that create this syndemic effect. We already had a pandemic we have pre-existing structural conditions that make it really hard to make anything accessible. And now we're talking about making vaccines accessible and making information accessible in a country that has no real track of doing this successfully for multicultural societies. Uh, it's not only about the 22 Maya language, but the fact that within each Maya language, there are 
dialectal variants, dialects uh, that make even more uh, complicated the idea of a centralized messaging. So I think that what we hear uh, from the Wukuka Walk team, we've seen we're seeing all over the country that there is a pre-existing um, mistrust from indigenous communities to the government, to the healthcare system. Uh, we just ran a national study for the World Health Organization. It's the first one in Latin America, an anthropology study about vaccine hesitancy and access and why it's happening. And it coincides with what, what we're listening uh, to the World Health Alliance. And, it, and it's um, the notion that this is not a simple solution and that delivering messages will have to uh, possibly challenge everything we've done so far from the public health system. Um, and, and I agree with uh, the notion that community level uh, leaders and even, you know, it's a plurimedical system we have here. So midwives and healers were having to face not only the notion of what the pandemic brings from the perspective of um, the World Health Organization and the status quo and our government saying what is important, but the local epistemic knowledge, local system of understanding what is important. And so not being able to eat because I couldn't go sell my crops for a month because I'm being restricted to go out somehow seems to have a lot more importance than am I getting the right information on time? But of course that changes with time. Yeah. Nadia, a, a question for you. As you as you listen to and watch that piece, you, you've worked in many countries around the world, Southeast Asia, and you've worked beyond, you know, COVID. You work in sexual reproductive health as well as other health areas. Um, I suppose the the big question about this is is really are these challenges that are unique to Guatemala or are there challenges that you've seen in other settings that you've worked in and is there a sort of a, an applicability or um, uh, there that, that perhaps resonates with you? I mean, I think it's very interesting and I think it's both yes and no. Um, you know, I think many of the myths and the complicated role of where people get information and which information people trust is we're seeing globally um, as we try to understand vaccine hesitancy. But one thing that's been really striking to me is I've been doing somewhat similar work in India um, and there, you know, as, as we were hearing from the Wukukuk team, you know, in Guatemala, there's this deep distrust in the government, whereas in India, um, you know, government is the number one. If, you know, if the government, they want their messages from the government, they want the messages from, you know, the the public health facilities and like that's that's where they're seeking information and that's at least in our work where people say they have the most trust and we're seeing you know such a different situation in Guatemala so it really it really makes us realize the importance of doing this very careful formative work to really understand how to design messaging you know who people trust ahead of time because you could even have the opposite effect right if you come in with a strong government message in a place like Guatemala that, you know, could actually push people further in the wrong direction. Yeah. And uh, one of the experiences, I guess, of COVID-19 is that government responses pretty much in every country around the world have had their challenges. 
Um, maybe that's putting it slightly as an understatement. But um, but Monica, um, you've watched how Guatemala responded to COVID nineteen. Um, it wasn't an entirely um, it, it wasn't an experience without some pain and challenges. What happened there? Well, at the beginning, we were experiencing um, a lack of distributive justice with the vaccines and everything related to it, superimposed on an already unequitable healthcare uh, system. And so it was a big challenge for the first level and second level of attention uh, healthcare workers who were giving, given these massive directives of you have to get the population vaccinated without being given any tools for doing it properly, not communication tools, neither materials for doing it in a culturally pertinent way, uh, taking into account uh, linguistic propriety, you know. Um, and so we were overwhelming the, the nurses in the first and second levels of attention and uh, basically making their work almost impossible at the beginning. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of poor reaction from even leaders themselves. Leaders did not have time to get informed enough. We saw religious leaders opposing drastically the efforts for vaccination and not only specific religions, but almost in every single denomination, there was a lack of information they could not provide to their communities who trust them as uh, reliable sources. And so in the first uh, months of the pandemic, we saw an exponential increase in myths and miscommunication about what the vaccine did, its safety. Um, and so I see that it took a year for the government to understand the behavioral and social drivers of these uh, vaccine hesitancy and the problems of accessibility. And they came after massive information was shared with decision makers uh, brought by multilateral cooperation agencies and universities and so on. And the first workshops to understand the problems started and then there were tailored interventions to correct the failures of not having uh, good information in the Maya languages and, and so on and many other issues of accessibility. But the shift has start, started basically in October last year. I, I can see you, Nadia, nodding your head. There are, there are things that um, obviously um, resonate for you there. Um, and, I, and I guess, um, and we'll come on to the, the partnership in just a second, but um, just how you and colleagues uh, have been thinking about how new technologies can help address some of the challenges that um, Monica and um, Wukukawok are, are describing. Um, has this been something that has been sort of at the forefront of your mind for a while? I mean, I think that, you know, social media is a, is an, an easy place to think about in terms of thinking about, you know, ways of reaching populations that are hard to reach, um, you know, via potentially other messaging um, or other approaches. And in a time where everything needs to happen so quickly, you know, and messages are changing and things are changing. But of course, it's it's complex to, under, to think about how to make that type of technology trusted, 
reliable, you know, all the things that we want. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as Monica was talking that's been so interesting about Guatemala and is maybe applicable to other countries as well is that, you know, we have the information in Guatemala, but Guatemala is so connected, especially via social media to other countries, including the U.S. And one thing that we've heard from some of our formative work a lot was just, oh, you know, there's like a knowledge of what is what information or what's happening or caseloads or vaccination rates and in other places. And that it influences what people are thinking. So it's not even just what's happening in one country. It's also thinking of the broader, the global network that we all have become. Well, let's go and see how uh, you all came to address these challenges. And uh, let's let's look at the solutions. As the COVID-19 pandemic surged through Guatemala, Maya Health Alliance went to work, creating social media and radio content to inform indigenous communities in their respective languages about how to prevent infection. Like this one, that gives safety tips in Cachiquel for going to the market. But in the summer of 2021, when vaccines were becoming more available across the country, Maya Health Alliance director Ann Kramer says her team partnered with researchers at University of California, San Francisco, and digital health content experts from Stanford University, this time to tackle vaccine hesitancy through a grant from the Vaccine Confidence Fund, or VCF, a new program under the Alliance for Advancing Health Online. So we were connected um, directly to the USCSF team by a mutual partner over the summer, and we were investigating working together on another project. When the VCF vaccine proposal came up, they said, hey, what do you think about this in Guatemala? Because we had shared a lot of the work that we were already doing around vaccine awareness and information on the radio and on social media and things like that. And so that's when we really started um, to work together on the VCF project. I'm Lucia Vascal. And my role is, I'm a doctoral student and I am a co-investigator in this project from UCSF. So our team is from the Institute for Global Health Sciences. We're all uh, global health, public health researchers. So uh, we were the ones that kind of thought through the methods that designed the recruitment. And then really digital medic was like the the point of like developing the content that was informed by the formative work. In the initial research phase, Maya Health Alliance Director Ann Kramer says they held focus groups with a variety of indigenous community members to understand the root causes of their vaccine hesitancy. We had groups of patients that work with us who were interested in sharing their views. We had people who were just in the marketplace and we went around saying, hey, are you interested in talking with us? And then it was really interesting to get their views. They had a lot to say. I think it was a really important dialogue for people to share and for us to witness in order to really take that information and, and understand the depth of people's fears, misunderstandings, misinformations, and the truths that they find too, to be able to put that into images. Those images, created by the digital medic team at Stanford, blended the focus group insights with culturally tailored design elements into two series of animated videos. One series that explains how vaccines work, 
and another aimed at dispelling the biggest vaccine myths circulating among Mayan populations. The videos are produced in the two most widely spoken Mayan languages, Quiche and Cacchiquel, and in Spanish. Jamie Johnston, Digital Medics Director of Research and Evaluation, explains. The animated characters were created in a way that it could kind of be applicable. We, we put in some more scenes to make it contextual for a rural population. We prototyped it and kind of got their feedback on, we're like, does anything feel off here? And what we were surprised is um, to hear is that, you know, to, to the audience um, that was prototyping it, to piloting it, they really said, hey, that, no, they look like they could be Guatemala, and this looks like it could be applicable to me, especially when you overlay the local language. So the video really opens with these cartoon characters, and these are even, you know, more icon of, like, smiley face figures. And there is kind of a communication between the icons around what might be the myth that's happening. And then um, voiceover that kind of explains why such and such might not be the case for the myth of the misinformation that's being addressed. At the end of February 2022, the finalized campaign runs on Facebook for three weeks, followed by a post-campaign survey two weeks later to measure impact. While improving vaccine uptake among Guatemalans Mayan communities is certainly a major goal, the team adds that it's not the only measure of success they hope for. Great success will be higher vaccine rates. That would definitely be wonderful. But overall, whether they're interacting with it in Spanish or in Cactuquel or Quiche, like for us, I think getting these videos out there, getting these shares rate, getting this information out there to the people will be successful and, and that will be really exciting. And I think that proving that if it is, right, it might not, but proving that in like sharing information in the indigenous languages really helps. We're able to share that message. Like there is a need for this, here are the results, it helps. I think this would be like a game-changing information that I would be really happy to have. Wow. Well, there we have the solution that you guys put together. Um, uh, Nadia, maybe we can start with you. Your thoughts, seeing it come together? Well, it's so lovely to get to hear all the voices of my team, um, my collaborators. It's been such a lovely experience working together. Yeah, I mean... As they described, I mean, I think that, you know, we really started with, you know, Wuku had been developing content for months, um, specifically around COVID-19. And the digital medic team has all this expertise and experience thinking about health communication and, you know, designing interventions. And so it's been really interesting for me as someone who's, this isn't my area of expertise, to watch them work together and really build off of what Wuku had already been thinking about and what they learned over all of the work that they've been doing, combined with what we found in the formative work and then digital medics experience. Like to me, I was surprised that the cartoons were what we decided. I was like, really? You know, but they talked to the, you know, people, community members, you know, Wuku has a lot of experience and they really felt that like this was what was going to resonate with people. And it, it, it seems like it is. And, you know, so it's been a great learning experience for me and challenged my own sort of thoughts about like what people would like the most. So it's been very exciting. Yeah. And, and Monica, your thoughts, and I, I, I guess particularly given, um, you know, how communities operate, how do you see these videos working these, and, and how people are going to access these through, through social media? 
Yeah, well, you know, this is exactly why it seems so exciting that um, we focus on what works locally. Because as I see, I see these videos and I hear that they're working in the central highlands around the Tecpan, Cachiquel and Quiche area where Wukukawok works. I'm thinking, wow, that's another universe. Uh, the communities in that area do have higher literacy rates than in other areas where I've worked. They do have more access to smartphones and data plans where they can, you know, 10 quetzales to buy a little bit of internet time. It's not as big a deal as, as other areas are. And, and I'm just intrigued to see um, their methodology for the focus groups and everything. I'm sure we can replicate it, but it just seems interesting that that's what works there because it's very different to what I saw being developed in other areas, which as an anthropologist invites me to think of the, the there's not a one size fits all, but there are, you know, like um, approaches that work and we can learn seems a lot from those and still be able to tailor them to local realities of what works. So just following up, if I if I may, Monica, there's there's one thing that really struck me. Um, and this is something that we've seen in other settings. I'm thinking particularly of, of um, Singapore, of Hong Kong, about who are the trusted agents for change? Who are the trusted sources of information? And particularly when you're using social media, you may not be doing what you've done in the past, and that's going to elders, but you're actually going to young people who are more comfortable using technology um, and that they are the sources of information that they then share with their parents, their grandparents and other elders in the community to combat some of the myths and misinformation. And I just wonder if that's something that you have seen happening in Guatemala um, and, and how that dynamic might work from an anthropological perspective. Yes, it's one of the most important results from the national study is that we cannot have the same strategy for different age groups. But there's an intergenerational, there was an intergenerational gap not being addressed by any efforts on the communication of vaccines. And we see now that um, different groups are targeting the youth that was ignored at the beginning of the pandemic. So social media, this is we see it in Petén, which is at the farthest, in farthest northern part of the country. All young people have smartphones, and they are becoming sources of information for the grandparents or grandparents who only speak Ekchi, for example, and not Spanish. And they are the ones who can download information and then do the immediate cultural you know, um, transformation with propriety for their for their grandparents. And so it's, it's um, something that works in a lot of places, not everywhere, as Guatemala still doesn't have uh, data plans for the entire country. So you may have uh, smartphones, but the internet with data plans to be able to, to use them on a digital campaign. However, the combination of these campaigns with other strategies seems to have the biggest, the biggest impact. I heard uh, in the, the radio, I heard that the Buka Walk is also engaging in radio. And the most important part of this is who are trusted sources of information. The fact that the voices chosen for the messages are from local leaders that are well known, that can be understood. The dialect variants respond to the jargon, to the local jargon of how we say things that they sound convincing. This is, a research has shown, that these are the most important parts. Who conveys the message? and 
even the precision of the words chosen in the local languages are, are really important. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to that question of place and context and the, the, the centrality of that. Um, Nadia, I wonder if, if you might share with us just the, you know, how you all have looked at the monitoring and evaluation of this and what, what tools you've used and what kind of indicators you're, you're looking at to evaluate impact. Yeah, so, you know, that's the big question with trying to understand how these social media campaigns work, if they work, you know. Um, and so we we are trying a few different things, you know, thinking about online behavior, which I think is something that has been explored more so far with um, previous social media campaigns, because it's easier, you know, to track shares and likes and, you know, do very quick little surveys after somebody sees something. So that's one approach. But we were really interested, especially since we had this amazing opportunity working with Wupu Kuok to try to see if we could measure any impact in intentions, but also actual behaviors and vaccine uptake at the community level. So we're able to really geographically target very specific areas where Wupu Kuok is working with indigenous communities. Um, and we, I think Lucia mentioned this in the video, but we, you know, we did a pre-survey and then we sort of have been like flooding the, you might say sort of the Facebook market with, um, you know, those videos you saw in short versions of it. And then we're going to follow up a couple weeks after the campaign stops. Um, and our timeline has shifted a little bit since this video, but we're, we're there. Um, and, um, you know, do post surveys with those same people, you know, and see if we see if, you know, something through social media in these very, you know, defined regions, um, we're able to see anything. Does Is it actually reaching people, you know, and um, is it doing anything to change behaviors? And then the third thing that we're also trying to do is since, because again, of these wonderful collaborations, we've been keeping record. It's actually publicly available data of vaccine uptake weekly for the past few months um, in these clinics right in the areas where um, where we've been targeting, and then we're going to see if we see, you know, any change over time. And of course, that's so complicated because that type of data you're dealing with supply, you're dealing with so all sorts of confounding factors. So we might not see anything, but I think it's worth a try because, you know, we're all interested in, you know, trying to understand the impact, not just on knowledge, not just on intentions, but on actual behaviors. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately where we want to go, vaccine uptake, but it is on uh, route to that, understanding how we're affecting hearts and minds, and you know attitudes and um, and behaviours. Um, Monica, as you've as you've looked at the work uh, that this partnership has done, uh, what would be your thoughts for moving forward, um, and and what do you think the relevance could be for um, uh, other providers of health services in Guatemala reaching rural indigenous uh, communities? Well, um, definitely an important step, Nadia has already said, is evaluating the impact of this material, um, especially in the context of a recent national alliance that has just been formed. They just had their first meeting where different NGOs, multilateral cooperation agencies, the government, the private sector and universities are coming together and putting all of their resources on the table and all of the evidence on the table to design a national strategy that is culturally pertinent so that if Walk has good lessons learned, they can put them on this 
database and there's actually a whole mechanism being developed and show how that could be useful somewhere else. Because what we saw is a fragmentation of efforts. Like everybody wanted to help with communication for the pandemic. And the problem, we were not coordinating our efforts. We were making the same mistakes, not sharing lessons learned. And so the learning curve was, you know, steeper than it. It was, it was not advancing the, the potential as much as we could have by sharing information. So I look at uh, what other groups have developed, in, including my team, and they are very realistic pictures, for example, because in that region, that's what works. The, the elders had our people, uh, the, the drawing experts drawing with them the faces and, and asking to change expressions so that the cultural message conveyed in a facial expression of a drawing was to them changing the whole message of whether it was positive or negative for vaccine uptake. But, you know, it makes me really question our own approach and saying, could we have made it simpler? Because we spend a lot of time and resources focusing on developing these very, very specific campaigns with all the cultural symbolism and the clothing. And I wonder if you have a lot to learn from approaches like this one you just showed us, where the investment didn't go so much in that direction, but if it shows that it worked, it could save a lot of resources elsewhere. And, and Nadia, as you look with colleagues at uh, Global Health Sciences at uh, UCSF, where do you go from here? Can you see some of the lessons learned here being applied uh, in other settings, in other communities? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think this issue that Monica just brought up of, I mean, it's one of the things our team's really interested in is like, how important is language, right? I think like, Lucia mentioned this a little in the video, like that's one of the things we're trying to test because we've developed it in the local languages, but also in Spanish. And we're going to see, you know, like, does it, how important does that end up being? Or the question of, you know, we, as I think earlier on, you know, we were talking a lot about dress and specific belts and specific colors and specific shoes. And, you know, we like, does that end up being more important or does something, something much simpler end up working? And I think that, you know, once we can understand more about that, and it might be different, maybe in Guatemala, things important, and in India, something else is important. So we're always, I think, going to need to be like really rooted in the communities and cultures that we're working in. But I think if as a global community, we can start understanding more about where can we build off each other and not have to recreate the wheel each time, and where is it important to invest really heavily in, you know, something that's going to speak to a specific, you know, person in a specific place. So at the end of each of these VAXUP, episodes, we ask our guests, you know, what's uh, appealing to them in the world of social and digital media, whether it's TikTok, uh, Instagram, Facebook Reels, whatever. Um, and Monica, I don't know, is there anything out there that's caught your attention in social media that that's sort of appealing to you? <laughs> now, this is an interesting discussion we just had with a, a group of young researchers from different disciplines. And what we see is that answer will vary depending on your age and context. So I'm considered um, by my team is really young and they're into all of the social media. So what they, they were talking to me about things I didn't even understood, like things that are next generation coming and how we should do more social media as even science come, you know, science communication, it's boring. We're not really transforming our results into 
usable things for development. And so they have it clear and they showed me 18 platforms that we should use. This is just here an idea. And here I am bring, being, being the intermediary with uh, the older generation of senior researchers who do not understand what this young group is talking about. At least TikTok is well known, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you kind of know those, but they were presenting really high tech digital cities and, and, and other things that um, to this generation that's connected globally, it's what we should be doing. But I also see that um, the realities of the context in each country where you have varying degrees of access to the digital world also have to be taken into account. And for vulnerable, underserved populations that have been discriminated against for accessing of healthcare education and almost everything in this country and many others, the solutions that we would like to see in social media um, communication, I guess, really have to be evaluated against what is accessible and what is realistic to to push. Um, a concrete example I can give you is I thought that um, the production of a 30-second video about myths of vaccine that was very cute was going to be successful in the Maya languages and, and it was a failure because 30 seconds take a lot of internet from someone who doesn't have the money to buy 25 quetzales or three dollars of internet each day. And so the feedback we got is they have to be really short and not take a lot of to download, you know. So these are small examples of how we may have grandiose ideas and they're wonderful to explore. But as good scientists, I guess, or committed to development, we have to evaluate how far they can go in reality. Yeah, yeah. And I think that issue of just how long, um, both in terms of, of how how much bandwidth people can actually purchase, but also attention spans is is really key in this environment. Um, Nadia, what has piqued your interest and attention over the last few weeks? Well, I think similar to Monica. This morning, as I was getting ready for this, my husband was like, shouldn't you be working on something like TikTok? And I was like, what's TikTok? So I'm like, you know, old here for the social media world. But um I mean, I think, you know, I think I also struggle with a lot of these same questions. And I think thinking about how if we develop something, you know, one thing we've been talking about as a team is, you know, Wuku taking some of these videos we've worked on together. And I think they've already been doing this to a certain extent. And they're community health workers who they do have, you know, access to technology and smartphones. And like when they go out in communities, sharing that with people, you know, so thinking about how we might develop things to a certain you know, they can be used over social media, but then how we use those maybe same tools if we found them to be effective to reach people who, you know, aren't going to be able to spend the money on the bandwidth or don't have a smartphone at all. So I think it's thinking, you know, what populations are we serving? And then, you know, how can we how can we reach those that that outer circle maybe who's like not able to access those technologies? Um, and I think that's really interesting and exciting to think about more. Well, Thank you both very much for your insights and consideration about the extraordinary partnership that uh, Wuku and colleagues at UCSF and Stanford have, have implemented. M Monica Berger-Gonzalez and Nadia Diamond-Smith, thank you very much for being on VaxUp. Thank, thank you. you so much. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vax Up podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the show, please check the show notes or visit us on our website at www.vaxuppodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Vax Up Podcasts. And please consider subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform. The Vax Up Podcast is produced by Hunuvat and NewsDoc Media. Writer and producer is Troy Espera. Graphic design by Michael Jarrett. Narration by Sherry CB. And the executive producers are Eric Espera and Ben Plumley. Thank you, and see you next time.